Hello and welcome to Dr. Kino's Film Emporium. It is episode 19. We are making great headway about three months in and we've done some fantastic films. Uh, this week we've got an interesting choice from an interesting man. Uh, his name is Dr. Tony de Gavea, and I can see him, uh, he just does a long sound, I can see him just coming to the edge of the uh, end of the lane. He's in an amazing car, it looks like a Durango 95 to me. Oh, very stylish. Oh, yeah, and here he comes. Hello, Tony. How welcome to the Emporium. Hi, Toby. It's great to see you again. It is you too. What, what, that is a Durango 95 outside, isn't it? It is. I'm, I'm glad you noticed that. Um, indeed, you know, indeed. My personal uh, vehicle of choice, I, I, I drive it everywhere. Durango 95, you remember it from uh, A Clockwork Orange. It's um, when the car they I'll play say hogs, yes. of, hogs of the road. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I had to have one, of course. Yeah, of course, and uh, you know, naturally, as uh, you know, that that befits uh, a man of your stature and status. So, <laughs> um, Tony, please take a seat in one of our elegant leather wingback chairs, and we can discuss this film that you brought. Oh, there's a there's a smell of sulphur as you as you produce this film. It's a oh yes, it's got a yeah. horns and a tail. It's a little bit uh, looks a little bit demonic. What I've had to encase story? it. I've had to encase it in a lead box. A uh, very wise. Yes, you did tell me on the phone what this was, but you wouldn't say exactly what it was. You said it was well, something dark. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's a film that not many people speak of, um, and if they do, it's uh, you know only in very disparaging terms. Generally, um, should I reveal what it is? Please do for our listeners. It's Exorcist Two: The Heretic. Dun 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 um, dun. And to be honest, I'm I'm probably going to be considered a a kind of movie heretic for even trying to defend this film. But um, Indeed. I, I, I think it's been very harshly treated. Okay. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Which And so I'm, I'm, very, I'm, I'm very glad to stand up and, and defend this uh, much maligned movie. Yes, and mal- malignancy is very much at the heart of this film, isn't it? Because it is yeah, a, it's a, it's a horror film, obviously. The sequel to well, uh, William kind of. The Exorcist. Kind of. It's kind of horror film. It gets a little bit more kind of, um, <laughs> gets a little bit more sort of cerebral, doesn't it, in parts from what well, I've read? I mean, I, I like it, and I think its fans do like it because it, it kind of really isn't a horror film. And so it was, like, uh, directed by John Borman, of course, mm. who you know is, like, Fabulous you know, director. Yep. a great British director, mm. uh, directed some great movies like uh, Deliverance, uh, Excalibur. Um, Emerald you know, I, I yep. The Emerald Forest. I even like Zardoz, you know, because ah, I'm a bit of a sci-fi yeah, fan. I have to part company with you on that one. <laughs> Um, it's, I like yeah, bizarre Sean sci-fi. Connery, bless him, rest in peace, in a red nappy. Not yeah. Really, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do like bizarre sci-fi movies. So um, You do. You do. Yeah. You, have a, you have a penchant for those. Okay. And, before, um, yeah. Sorry, go, go on. on. Uh, well, before I, I we get gonna... into uh, the actual de- deconstruction and uh, justification, indeed, of Exorcist to the Heretic, um, let's find out a little bit more about you, because uh, you've had an interesting journey into film, I think, would be safe to say. So, um, yeah, you're, well, you're basically, you're an East Anglian boy, aren't you? Born and bred. Yeah. No, I wasn't born here. Um, oh, you were not? Okay, my mistake. Nor- Norwich is my, my home city, yeah. But I was, I was actually born in the West Midlands. I don't know if you knew, if you knew oh, that. I didn't know that, actually. Um, no, I've known you a long time. Um, so, yeah. no, I didn't know that. You kept that very quiet. You know, I'm I'm proud. I'm proud to be born in uh, Stourbridge. Ah, um, a fine, a fine <laughs> town, home of the wonder stuff and uh, pop release itself. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm not. Yeah, I guess, uh, but not not a lot of people know that. 
probably. There you go. But um, yeah, which I was born in Worcestershire, but um, it's not in Worcestershire anymore. It's the West Midlands. So oh. it's strange how they sometimes change the, the, yes, the state those, lines. Uh, those they gerrymandering yeah, of boundaries. Yeah. Yes. So, um, but I genuinely was born in Worcestershire, but it, mm-hmm. it's not there. Worcestershire isn't there anymore where I was born. So uh-huh. yeah, it, it's very strange. But um, yeah, I'm very proud to be a, a Norwich boy. Sure. Um, actually, um, recent guest of yours, Miriam, Indeed, yes. Who you know, yes, who Dr. Kent, uh, I, do. I, I know extremely well. Um, yeah, she was Norwich born and bred. So um, oh, you've had a bit of a, a run of East Anglian guests. Of we late. have. And the, the, the fact that I did my PhD at, East, at UEA in, in Norwich is entirely coincidental. I think and so. And not at all suspicious uh, yeah. in the slightest. Yes. I hardly even <laughs> noticed you. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, I'm very, um, I'm very shy and retiring, aren't I? <laughs> Especially stalking around campus, usually with a coffee. Um, um, yeah. Yes. Anyway. Most shine retiring people are generally kind of um, host podcasts, I find. Yes. Well, we we lurk in our in our spare bedrooms and uh, yes, get our home studio together. Um, so, into with film, you were you were quite active on the music scene in Norwich uh, earlier on in your life, and then but also you were building up quite a good collection of films. Uh, and sort of film knowledge, weren't you? You were, you were, yeah. Th- well, you were a thirsty consumer of, uh, of popular culture. Well, yeah. I mean, I I came to like academia quite late. I mean, I, I was a mature student, but I mean, I I ended up uh, doing my undergraduate, uh, my BA in um, film and American studies, um, so I could get to have a year out in Los Angeles. Mm. Um, so I could, you know, immerse myself in the whole sort of film culture and industry out there. Um, and it was a great year studying out there and I learned a lot. But um, but yeah, I, I always just wanted to only study uh, film. So, um, yeah, and UEA was a great place to do that at the time, mm. way back there yeah. in way the late, nine, late 90s, which is, uh, seems so long ago. It does, um, yes. So, yeah, starting in the 20th century. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I guess that's it, really. Um, I, I, I just thought, well, you know, I, I really need to start writing stuff about films, so I better get in, into academia so I can, mm-hmm. and um, I haven't looked back. No, indeed, and you got your doctorate in 2017? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Fantastic. Um, yeah, I'm graduating along with your recent guest, Miriam. Indeed. So um, we've got some wonderful sort of photos together in our gowns. So, <laughs> with a special uh, floppy hat that they give you when you, kind of uh, when felt, you get a doctorate. Yeah. Felt floppy hat. Yes, yeah. it's all worth it just for that hat, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the <laughs> main reason I embarked on this trajectory yeah. for the velvet floppy hat. Yes. Tony, what was the very first film you remember seeing at the cinema and there's always a difference between seeing a film on tv oh, than it's the cinema do, do yeah you remember back oh yeah that's um that's a really good question um i i do i do remember the first film i remember seeing at the cinema and um, you're probably going to find this funny um but it's greece will. greece oh really okay yeah, yeah. 1978 yeah. Indeed, um, and that's, yeah, okay. So, okay. And, you know, that was the first film I saw. And so you can imagine that was highly memorable um, mm. at the time. And so uh, it's strange, you know, I still have, like, a, a fondness for musicals, classical mm. musicals to this day, oddly, um, which doesn't really reflect in my research. So it's kind of a guilty pleasure. Indeed. Um, no pleasure maybe, should be guilty, no, but, yeah. <laughs> well, true, yeah. Maybe Unless I can, it adds, um, you know, a certain something to your pleasure, if you feel guilty. Yeah, actually, I, I could... I, probably like to do a, a talk on a musical sometime in the future with Dr. Keynote. That can, that can be arranged, yes. Yeah. 
Cool. So, Greece, uh, and yeah. did you have feelings or a crush on Olivia Newton John? <laughs> a little bit. No, did you have a crush on <laughs> uh, on John Travolta? <laughs> uh, maybe a bit of both. I think. Indeed. Maybe. Yes. I, I was very confused. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Well, they're both handsome they, people. They're good. They were such people, beautiful, right? beautiful they are people, gorgeous, aren't they? As yeah. Just... So I, I was entranced um, by by everything, and um, you know. Uh, I immediately wanted, um, you know, a leather motorcycle jacket, which of oh. course my parents wouldn't ne- would never let me have because uh, mm. I think um, they were too uh, freaked out by by the whole punk thing at the time, and they, mm. you know, nobody wanted their children to be little punks running around in no. leather jackets. No. Um, so yeah, yeah. the um, uh, so Greece was the first sort of taste of of actual cinema. Um, what was the actual film? And this is always a really interesting question, which I always ask my guests if um, is. What was the actual film that lit a fire under you that actually got you properly into cinema? Because and this changes so much for different people. So, mm. for example, Mel Williams, we both know, um, it was actually Tarantino, and she saw Reservoir Dogs when she was eighteen in mm. Bristol at the Watershed, and she went back and saw it five times because she was so blown away by it. So, what was the film that that really did it for you? Well, uh, this goes back to the Durango '95 outside. Uh-huh. Um, I think I know the answer to this. Yeah, it was uh, definitely a Clockwork Orange. It's mm-hmm. definitely because I'd never seen anything like that, mm-hmm. and it was, you know, of course, it's got you know some really disturbing and you know quite problematic themes, mm-hmm. um, you know, because you know essentially it's about this deranged kind of sort of youth cult um, that um, you know uh, get their kicks from violence and rape um mm. so you know there's not much, really much you can sort of say that in terms of well you know it's questioning uh, a lot of um, very sort of troubling themes but um at the time when i saw it and i was so young when i saw it and um i probably shouldn't have been watching it to be honest mm-hmm. <clears throat> um just just the kind of um aesthetic and the stylishness it's such a stylish movie it is um, and it's yes. so perfectly put together yeah. And um, that, that's what really made me think, um, the first film that made me think about cinema as an art form and, um, right. and what you can do in terms of communicating uh, through cinema. Yeah, a fine choice. And yeah, I mean, mm. Kubrick famously uh, pulled his um, pulled it because he was quite disturbed at how disturbing it was other, to other people because there were gangs of youths turning up dressed like Alex and his droogs. Mm. Which was yeah, um, yeah, yeah, not his intention at all. So no, well, I mean that was um, yeah, I mean that apparently that was that was the main reason why he pulled the film um, only in the UK, I think. Um, right, I don't think he had the reach, did he, to actually um, no, do that in other countries? No. Yeah. So people could yeah. per- watch it perfectly well um, in other countries, but yeah, but um, yeah, like copycat gangs, um, yeah. that's what did it. So, um, which considering you know the film's disturbing themes. Um, well, was certainly uh, enough to trouble Stanley Kubrick into thinking, mm, no, no, I don't want that. I don't want this. But yeah, yeah, and, you know, it's, it's understandable. Oh, um, totally, totally. I mean, yeah, it's strange. I mean, the, the reason I, I saw like a, a kind of pirated sort of, I shouldn't be saying this, I'm, I'm <laughs> declaring myself as a criminal, but Indeed. it wasn't available. It simply wasn't available <laughs> when I was a youngster. So I, I sort of saw a pirated video um like you know sort of back in the late 70s or something okay um or maybe it was 1980 or something like that but it you know it wasn't it was still banned so oh yeah um, for sure yeah i mean i think we had to actually wait till he died in 99 before they could actually show it in theatrical yeah. theaters again so, so it's quite quite yeah. incredible really Hard to get um, hold of yeah but mm. um but it didn't make me want to sort of like um be a, a violent um, gang member so that no. was all right 
No, which is I still did well. want. I still did want the leather motorcycle jacket, though. Indeed, yes. So moving on. So this is the film that really sort of set fire in you, and uh, you did your PhD on American um, sort of apocalypse films and sort of the the rise of the rights, uh, the rise of the sort of right and uh, and just yeah yeah. So I mean, an interesting subject. Well, I mean, um, but. Yeah, that was that was really interesting. I I thought I I really um, was I was really intrigued by um, the fact that um, you know the religious right and like e- or you know evangelical America, if you like, mm. were completely obsessed with the same thing that you know Hollywood, uh, science fiction Hollywood was at the same time, and that's that's the end of the world. And I was really mm-hmm. intrigued by this because you know in the twentieth in the twentieth century, these two um, sort of institutions if you like were were put poles apart on the mm, cultural so spectrum. so dissimilar but actually yeah similar yeah yeah but but they were both like really fascinated by the same themes like the, mm. the the end of the world the apocalypse so i was really kind of really wanting to explore sort of further into this and um and whether there was like any sort of you know ideological crossover and it's really interesting because i th- i discovered in the 20th century there wasn't really um apart from you know films about demonic possession uh, for example but that was like a, a different kind of genre that that was kind of more like supernatural horror mm. but in terms of like kind of this subgenre of apocalypse films it was always about this sort of these secular themes where you know it's cold war paranoia you know um meaning you know nuclear destruction we're blowing mm-hmm. ourselves up or the threat of like nuclear annihilation yeah. or like environmental themes, the environmental devastation, always very secular. <laughs> yeah. Very secular themes. Like, you know, it's, we're destroying ourselves. It was about human self-destructive nature, if you like. Mm. And then I was really interesting, interested because in the 21st century, like post nine 11, say, mm. um, watershed these, moment yeah. where it really was a watershed moment. Cause these themes seem to change and, the reasons for like apocalypse started becoming more spiritual and um, kind of sort of inculcating sort of um, re- really sort of more biblically, biblically apocalyptic themes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just explored as, you know, reasons as to why that might be. And, and as you say, I think um, 9-11 was a really watershed moment where, um, well, certainly culturally and ideolog- um, ideologically, um, the United States became more, sort of right wing in its yes. sort of outlook yes um, i think i think trump um is very much a product um, yeah or something the conditions that gave rise to trump i think are very much a, a product yeah. of, uh, of post 9 11 stuff well yeah. i mean I, I i sort of regarded my thesis in the end as like a precursor to what we really saw with trump because mm, um, evangelicals supported him in in droves very much is, so yeah. It's just so counterintuitive, considering what um, I think could safely be say what a sinner he has been and yeah. still is. So yeah, interesting stuff. So yes. it was really interesting. So yeah, so so in my own research, I, I kind of saw that these kind of um, Manichean tensions, um, like you know, between good and evil, science and religion, uh, progressiveness and conservatism, they they sort of seem to sort of provide a kind of sort of prescience for this sort of culture war that we're kind of seeing now mm-hmm. um, with, with the whole Trump thing. And and I think what I was really looking at was, like I said, the sort of precursor to really what, what this is sort of really sort of polarizing ideological sort of battle in the United States and elsewhere in the world as well, of course. But uh, yeah, so it seems like 
things I was looking at in the early 20th century, uh, post 9-11, seemed to have a real sort of direct connection to things that would emerge like, you know, up to 2020. So, yeah, that's good to know, <laughs> in a way. <laughs> yes. um, well, The Simpsons famously apologised. I think Matt Groening ap apologised for um, for predicting the future when they actually did a, um, a flash-forward and, uh, and President Trump was in an episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah. And I yeah. think he, he took to Twitter and said, I'm oh, really sorry, we didn't we really didn't know this was going to happen for real. <laughs> or yeah. worse to that effect. Ah, so, speaking of the end of the world, Let's move on to The Exorcist 2, because it's not quite the end of the world, but it's also, it's, yeah, there's some interesting stuff going on here. Yeah, well, it, it kind so of... So, first of all, where did you, when did you first see this? Uh, probably I saw this um, in the, maybe in the mid-80s. Right, okay, yeah. Where I was, you know, still quite a youngster. I mm. probably shouldn't have been watching at all, <laughs> um, really. But um, probably in the early to mid-80s, you know, again, I don't know if I mentioned it, but it's from 1977, so right. The so original film four, was four years after the yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. So 73 was the first one. So about yeah. four years. So it's quite a long time. So I revisited. I've, I've you know, I've, I've seen it again since, and I've revisited it recently. And of course, mm -hmm. when I started turning my thoughts towards uh, your fine emporium, mm -hmm. um, I thought this film has really, really uh, had had a. Um, a, a sort of a bad a bad rep for a really long time yes it and has. I, I don't mm. think it really deserves it not as not as badly as it has uh, I mean for example you know people people consider it to be one of the worst films ever made and, um, and that is a harsh that's a harsh label yeah when you put it and, in the same category as plan nine from outer space or, or yeah or um, the room e exactly um, then, you know I mean someone like um you know Mark Commode uh, you know and as I'm sure you know you know his favorite film mm. uh the exorcist um and so you know he deems like um the exorcist and its sequel to encompass both the best film ever made and the worst film ever made Ooh. so it makes you kind of think what wow what's happened in this yeah. in these four years indeed um, mark you got the, personal beef with um, <laughs> john borman i mean come on you know? yeah and but if it, you think about it look um, it's a John Borman film, as we've just discussed, and you know he's he's not a bad filmmaker, is he? I think um, he's a superb filmmaker. Um, yeah, I think he goes. He's a. As you could probably argue he's a visionary director. Um, mm. Sometimes those visions are a bit way out. Like I'm thinking yeah. Zardoz for one. Yeah. Um, but the, when he gets it right, like Deliverance or The Emerald Forest, etc. And Excalibur, Hope and Glory, Hope and Glory, and Hope and Glory you know, film. he's just yeah. superb. So mm. Excalibur is a film that yeah. I love. Yeah, Excalibur it, is a wonderful spectacle for the eyes. Totally. I mean, he's very, I mean, it sounds, you know, a sort of um, oxymoron, not an oxymoron, but self-evident that he's a very visual director. And I think mm. that's, that comes across really strongly in this film. Not that I've seen it, but from what we've just, you know, from what I've read and what you've told me about this film, yeah. it is, you know, it's it's visually really interesting. I, I think it's really sort of um, visually um, intriguing. I, I, I really like the aesthetic um, sort of look of this film, but um, before I want to talk, before I start talking about that, I almost forgot to mention that not only has it got a great cast with people like yes. Richard Burton, who plays um, uh, Father uh, Philip Lamont, Richard Burton, um, Louise Fletcher, um, yep. Nurse Ratchet, only two years, yeah. only two years after her Oscar-winning performance as Nurse Ratchet in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Max von Sydow reprising his role in sort of flashback form mm. as Father Merrin. 
and also Paul Heinried, who people probably best remember as Victor Laszlo in Casablanca, mm. in in his last film role. Mm. Um, oh, not to mention James Earl Jones. Yes, um, with you know, and, who's also got a, sl- yeah. a, a splendid voice as well. Yeah, and and Linda Blair reprising her role as Reagan McNeil, mm. um, like you know, as a like a teenager now. Um, so it's got a great cast, but not only that, the score is by Ennio Morricone. So. Mm. You know, I, at times the score is kind of really strange and sort of almost tribal with like sort of strange kind of rhythms and, and sort of uh, what I can only describe as random yelps from time to time um, and sort of strange cries from the darkness. But uh, at the same time, there's like a recurring theme, which is more akin to something like the theme from Once Upon a Time in the West, you know, um, mm-hmm. with that sort of sort of somber soaring, like, um, you know, sort of lady's voice as an instrument haunting yeah leading the tune yeah again very haunting and i you know i can listen to that without the need for the accompanying moving pictures um so you know i don't think that this film can in any way be categorized as like certainly not the worst film ever made i i think people had such a problem with this because they were so disappointed because Uh. john borman didn't give the audience what they wanted um, no, because it's not. I mean, it, I think the horror factor is probably down the list in terms of it's not a horror. It's not a horror film, is it? It's not really it's scary. Yeah. No, it's more kind of um, a sort of meditation on the nature of, you know, evil and good versus evil. And you know, it's sort of. I mean, I love this because it plays into my own sort of personal research mm-hmm. and you know what are the kind of themes I looked at in my thesis of course but yeah it's theme it, it sort of looks at sort of more metaphysical themes and it's not the criticism comes from outright disappointment because john borman didn't give the audience what it wanted mm-hmm. and the audience came into the theaters in 1977 expecting a really uncomfortable ride and a really really tense kind of you know scare fest um where you know they were even con- probably contemplating whether they could even watch the entire film without having to run out of the cinema and mm-hmm. what they got was this kind of metaphysical contemplation of the nature of good and evil yeah, and yeah. and and people just thought what the hell is this but you know i really like it because um it's a film very much of its time and dare i say it was very much demonized indeed I mean, John John Borman. I don't know what on earth possessed him. Um, Indeed, yeah, who'd know? Devil only knows. Yeah, we we, we could pun Um, like this for a long time. We could, but um, but let's not. (laughs) Let's not. uh, Let's save our listeners' uh, sensibilities. But it's a film very much of its time, and um, there's loads of films in the late seventies that um, really start sort of traversing from this sort of supernatural horror Mm. to sort of a more kind of metaphysical horror, and sort of Mm. you know, um, like the paranormal power of the the mind for example like carrie in mm. 1976 yeah or um, fury as well with um, the fury so yeah, that made yeah yeah 1978 yeah. with amy irving as indeed you know, yes one of her first roles yeah teenager with scary telekinetic abilities. yes well i've just been um, i've just finished watching um stranger things and it's oh yeah you know yeah. those that kind of like late 70s early 80s really you know, inspired by those kind kids of films. like firestarter yeah. with yeah. telekinetic powers you know all all the influences are on show there yeah so yeah. So, so um, what, what, in terms what's of acting um, from the cast, because like you said, it's a, it's just a brilliant cast. I mean, yeah. Richard Burton. Um, I think you're going to play a clip for us um, in a minute. 
but he's yeah. you know he's just got the best voice for this kind of you know, One, exposition of, of the of the good yeah. versus evil. I mean, a lot of people criticise him in this film for maybe like overacting and you know some corny scenes, and yeah, maybe there is a bit of that. But you know, Richard Burton is you know he cannot act badly in the film. He isn't. Mm-hmm. He's just too good for that. And it's just um, you know I, you know there there are some really funny moments there was one scene where he cries out i'm not a devil worshipper i'm not a devil worshipper which was akin to monty python's like you know holy grail where she cries out i'm not a witch i'm not a witch um there's some really corny lines and um there's a line he opens with that he says he says at one point no one no one in the church wants to hear about the devil satan has become an embarrassment to our progressive views and I'm thinking, yeah, the, the famed progressive views of the Catholic Church in the yes. 1970s. So there, there was some really ridiculous kind of, um, you know, dialogue. Um, that He's got such an iconic look as a father, you know, with the dog collar, mm-hmm. Richard Burton. You know, it's it's great to watch, and he's great to watch in this film. Um, mm. So I just want to talk about the dialogue, because, I mean, the, I read um, that uh, Linda Blair... Uh, her feedback was that it was actually a really good script originally, and then mm. they had about five rewrites. They sort of kept chucking writers on the fire, and they were yeah. rewriting and rewriting, and the actors didn't know what was going on <clears throat> for most of the shoot. Well, um, a, a lot and, of you know, it, I mean, this this must show in the film. Well, a lot of the criticism is like you hear words in the in the criticism like confused and incomprehensible and. Or you know, disjointed or and unintelligible is another one, uh, or just simply absurd. And you hear these kind of key words in all the criticism. Um, and you know, it probably you know the, the, there was a point. You know, the, the script is a bit disjointed, but yeah, that's probably one of the weaknesses of the film. But um, I don't think it's it's real. The real power in the film is really its kind of themes, its overriding mm-hmm. themes, which are very kind of you know pretty heavy, really. And um, and it's aesthetic as well and you know but yeah the script at times is is disjointed but i don't think to the point that people's people complain i think there is a a coherence throughout the film and i I followed it perfectly Mm. um i think it really reminded me of um another film by a british director uh ken russell Mm -hmm. uh and the film altered states from 1980 do you know it yeah i know of it i've not seen it yeah, it's really similar. It really reminded me of that. And, um, you know, we've sort of it had like similar kind of there's a there's a lot of like in um, Exorcist 2, there's a lot of kind of dreamlike scenes mm-hmm. and like kind of dreamlike sort of visions that the characters have. Um, and like Ken Russell's Altered States, there's a there's a real kind of sort of uh, ethereal kind of quality to a lot of the scenes. Um, and I think that suits the film. It suits the themes because we're talking about you know supernatural evil and demonic possession and these are kind of really ethereal surreal abstract themes and i think the way the film is put together suits these overall themes it's in it chimes with these themes so i think if you kind of revisit this film and maybe with a more intellectual hat on let's say um revisit this film in a sort of intellectual context um, I think then it really begins to work and and uh, really becomes more tied together. But if you're just expecting Exorcist 2, a repeat yeah. of the the sort of 
gore fest and green vomit of the first film, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Uh, In fact, that, think... kind of talking about Stanley Kubrick, it reminds me, he, uh, he said something about this film. Uh, I think it's some advice to John Borman. And he said, the only way you can really make a sequel of The Exorcist is you have to out vomit the original film. Um, <laughs> which is a great. Which, yeah, which is a great. Um, and so and John Borman simply chose not to do that. And he just chose to make his own film. And I think he was really kind of harshly punished for it. Mm. I'm just looking at some of the reviews. And there's, oh, there's, God, there's don't a ton do that. of bad ones, which is a shame. Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune gave this film zero stars out of four and declared it the worst <laughs> major motion picture I've seen in almost eight years on the job. Um, someone else said uh, Leslie Halliwell described it as a highly unsatisfactory psychic melodrama. Um, uh, yes, the uh, Ruth Batchelor's review in the Los Angeles Free Press said uh, that Exorcist 2, The Heretic, makes the original film look like Citizen Kane. Uh, this movie is a laughable horror. It should be exorcised out of the theatres. Um, oh, that's Ruth. pretty harsh. Um, um, yeah, and not it entirely um, uniform. Obviously, there's a lot of people yeah. who hated it. But Pauline not, not not everybody. Not no. everybody. Like for for example, like Martin Scorsese, mm. who, as we know, he's interested in in religious themes in his films. You know, um, right from Mean Streets, which has a real sort of Catholic guilt subtext. So mm. he he was really intrigued by um the the um the second the the, the sequel uh, in fact he said he preferred it because he said it was just more interesting thematically and i think it is you know the, the first film it, it, it's very you know it is what it is and you know it represents a, a, a you know a, a, i guess a kind of Manichean conflict between good and evil and because the second film is much more complex and it does go into sort of these sort of sort of metaphysical kind of themes. Um, I would say it's a sort of segue between, you know, supernatural horror and metaphysical horror where, you know, in the late 70s, we're kind of, we are kind of, you know, coming from Carrie, we are turning to more sort of, uh, you know, paranormal kind of activity and it's mm-hmm. sort of, yeah. rather than anything beyond this world, it's really coming from human minds, um, which I almost forgot. The Medusa Touch, 1978, starring Richard Burton. Burton, Yeah, Yeah, I remember the collapsing collapsing church. Exactly, yeah. yeah, I mean, that was a man. um, Richard Burton plays a man with such powerful telekinetic powers, he can literally wish things to to happen in real life just Mm. by thinking about it. Um, So, yeah, that needed to be mentioned. So, So there is this kind of turn towards... It's a turn away from the sort of supernatural horror of like, you know, demonic possession and more sort of like, you know, I guess it's the Heretic uh, is, as I say, a film of its time. And it's turning towards themes that are in trend for that time in the late 70s. And it was really totally unforgiven for that. Very Um, much so. I mean, it holds some 15 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Hokey mystical effects, lousy plotting, (laughs) worse acting, directly tarnishes the chilling legacy, which is... Unfair. I don't think the performances are that bad, are they? I mean, you said no, no, Richard Burton. No. So, do you want to no. should we listen to him um, Not, yeah. chatting about uh, um, oh, the, the Manichaean uh, yeah, uh, yeah. good versus evil? Yeah, listen to this. I've got it lined up here. This mm-hmm. is um, a great uh, dialogue between Louise Fletcher, who's playing um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Tuskin, Father Lamont, uh, dialogue between these two. But... Again, you, you hear like Richard Burton's wonderful, rich, deep voice, his actor's voice. But uh, yeah, listen to this. What am I up against, Father? Evil. Mental illness. That's what we're up against here. 
or if you like, the casualties of a diseased society. Evil is not evil is a spiritual being, alive and living, perverted and perverting, weaving its way insidiously into the very fabric of life. <laughs> I just yeah, love that. Just, yes. So there's quite a lot of that. And so, you know, if you enjoy that kind of thing, um, you're going to love it. Um, Yeah, yeah, but, but, you know, there is a bit of corny dialogue as well. But that, you know, I I, I think that's wonderful prose just just there. So So you mentioned about the the visual because, I mean, John Borman is is above all a visual director. And you've made a really interesting link with another more successful and definitely better received horror film about five years later. So tell us about that. Well, this is all part of why I think uh, the film's been really unfairly treated because I, I really think it's been more influential, um, certainly for filmmakers, than they let on. And I think filmmakers have not mentioned this film simply because of its critical reputation. Um, but definitely, the you know the ending of um, uh, Exorcist Two, um, very reminiscent to the ending of Poltergeist, and I can't believe that. Steven Spielberg didn't see the end of uh, The Exorcist, Exorcist 2 in 1977 and sort of basically supplanted it as the ending of his own film. Uh, the two endings are, are really, really similar. I mean, am I allowed to give spoilers? Oh, on, I think so. This? I think it's, it's uh, definitely but, um, uh, gone past spoiler stage. Yeah. But, yeah, go <laughs> but, you know, um, Steven Spielberg, The Exorcist, uh, oh, sorry, uh, The Pol- uh, Poltergeist in 1982. Um, say, same ending, basically. Uh, the end of... Um, Exorcist 2, that the house kind of implodes in on itself okay. uh, in a, almost in the same way that it does in Poltergeist. But also, you know, remember in, in Poltergeist that at the end, before the house collapses in on itself, you know, they're trying to avoid getting sucked into the void, this kind of wind trying to suck mm-hmm. them into the void. Um, aesthetically, it's the same in Exorcist 2. Instead of um, the wind sucking people, trying to suck people out, the wind sort of comes into the house and smashes through the windows with a plague of locusts and this sort of violent rushing wind while the house is basically falling apart and imploding into itself. It's aesthetically so similar to the end of Poltergeist that I can't believe that Steven Spielberg didn't basically rip off the ending yeah. for his own much, much well-received um, uh, sort of horror movie. And again, similar theme about uh, a child being taken by uh, malevolent spirits yeah because um, i mean tobe hooper directed it but did steven spielberg produce um, poltergeist yes that's right steven spielberg produced yeah. it yeah you're right tobe hooper, to- tobe hooper of course yeah um yeah. St- uh, spielberg produced yeah which would be quite right. i think um that would be quite tough for a director to sort of not be influenced by spielberg at that point so yeah if you if your um, producer's suggesting something and you're going to probably get and it's steven spielberg you're probably going to go along with it whatever <laughs> Whatever was stolen, I'm sure it was Spielberg all the yeah. way. Yeah. It's just like him. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> we like Steven Spielberg at Dr. Kino. Um, not all of his films, but most of them. <laughs> yeah, well, um, he stole the end of The Heretic. It, well, let, we will... I think that's... You certainly made the case for it, definitely. And it was five years previously, too. So, you know, yeah. Stephen, yeah. if you do listen, if you are listening to this, do write in and tell us whether you nicked the ending of of heretic uh for the uh, ending of poltergeist we'd love to know i didn't know he routinely listened into that i would never uh, have i'd said like to think if... that he may one day um who knows i would he may, never he have said be... anything toby if i if no. I'd have known. well he hasn't made himself known to me if he has but um i think it possible but unlikely 
Um, so yeah, in the, in the words of Mr. Spock, um, nothing's impossible, but some things are highly improbable. <laughs> so make of that what you will. Um, I have to say, Tony, I was a little bit on the fence with this one because just mm-hmm. just because of its advanced reputation. Yeah. That said, I it is going to go into the Emporium. Um, Brilliant. I think the visuals alone, from what you've described, and just just the cast, and you know, mm. that's I think that's uh, very much a case of Morricone. The... Don't forget Morricone. Uh, Morricone, the score as well. Um, you mm. know, these these are sort of it's a triple whammy. Yeah. Um, and I think John Borman is a great director, so I would definitely put this in the Emporium. And I think, as uh, as you say, it's probably disappointed expectations of the of the horror fans and gore hounds who didn't get what they wanted yeah. and therefore you know, uh, protested mightily by the sounds of it. So, yes, th- we will take Exorcist great. to the heretic well, as a Dr. Kino. I think there's a lesson uh, in this that we can learn, and um, don't believe everything you read. Don't believe the hype, yeah, or don't believe the critics. <laughs> and don't, always, don't believe them. And don't believe Mark Commode all the time. <laughs> <laughs> not, not all the time. Not all the time, most of the time. Uh, but he's a lovely man. He's, I, I, I've never met him. I would love to have him on. Um, he's delightful. So, yes. He's delightful. It would, it would, it's, you never know. It's it poss- not impossible, but highly improbable. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, thank you so much uh, for your time. And, uh, You're very welcome. And your, for your film choices and for sharing uh, oh, with us, uh, your I've opinions. I've enjoyed it immensely. On, yeah, on, uh, on, uh, uh, on John Borman's uh, 1977 effort, The Exorcist to Heretic. Um, yeah. Safe journey back to to Naraj on in your Durango ninety five. Don't uh, don't have any uh, dodgy dodginess on the M eleven uh, or the A fourteen <laughs> on your way up. And yes, we will no doubt uh, you will no doubt uh, grace you, grace us with your presence in future. Thank you, thank you, and uh, yeah, uh, it's been fun. See you soon. Good. No worries. <laughs> and that was Dr. Tony De Gavea, and his choice was. The Exorcist 2 by John Borman uh, from 1977. As ever, thank you very much indeed for listening to Dr. Kino's Film Emporium. Uh, we will be back at a future date and with more uh, underrated, underappreciated and under-the-radar classics. Take care, enjoy your films and stay safe, people. All the best.